and welcome to the Now Spinning Magazine podcast with me, Phil Aston. And on this episode, I'm actually delighted to have with me Harvey Lee, who's the author of a new book called Backstage Pass. There we go. We both said it at the same time. Yeah. 50% rock and roll, 50% business, and 100% true. Um, this is a music book, and it would stand alone as a music book. It would also stand alone as a business book, but a very, very different sort of business advice book. There's some real laugh out loud moments, but there's also a lot of really honest and kind of thought provoking um, advice as well, as all of us, whoever you are watching or listening to this, will know there's various things in your life where things go well and things don't go well. And what I really loved about this book is everything that you'd expect in life, ups and downs, is in it. So welcome, Harvey. And um how are you how are you doing and what tell me tell me first of all this is a book that could have easily just been a book about your life easily because it's that yeah, good it yeah but did it so did it start did you think music book or business book that's a really good question and and thanks phil for having me on the show it was a really i, I got goosebumps when you were doing the intro there <laughs> i thought who could it be possibly be talking about uh, oh it's me um uh, yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it was a huge dilemma for me from my music background and from my marketing background. Um, when I looked at it in simple terms, I thought, well, if I wrote a biography uh, about music, who the hell would care? Because who's going to buy a book from someone they've never heard of? Even if even if it is the best book in the world, you and I know the best product doesn't always win. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I should just turn it into a hardcore marketing book. And then, it, yeah, I answered my own question on that because it only takes five seconds on Amazon to do a search for marketing books. And when they when it presents you with 6,000 results and you see some pretty big names on there, you realize, well, what's the point in even trying to compete? And that's not defeatist, it's just being realistic. So I thought, what can I do? How can I tell the story that's going to be interesting and valuable in a way that not just music fans would appreciate uh, or people with an interest in the inner workings of the music business or just just general music fans, but also marketing and business people as well. So what I try to do is address both in the same book. And that's where the format, I've been told the format's quite unique about it, it comes about. So it's a book of career and life lessons wrapped around a true rock and roll story. That's the way I sort of articulate it. Um, but even for a long time, I wasn't able to even articulate it properly because it was so different. So. I came up with this this idea of, well, you know what? I've learned a lot, even even with all these funny stories that I used to tell at the water cooler or the coffee shop in all my corporate jobs years gone by. The, there are lessons in life that have come out of it that are useful for everybody, whether you're in marketing or not, whether you're in music or not. It just transverses across life as we live it regardless of whether you're 20 years old or 60 years old you know i'm knocking i'm knocking on the latter end, not the former end of that scale and um so i thought you know what i, I we had to sit down with the editor and, and i thought well why don't we structure it this way and so every chapter is written as if it's like a movie as if it's you know me speaking you all the way through a particular moment in my life through discovery of music finding your finding your drive finding your passion through to actually making it happen and all the bits in between and then every as you know because you've read the book but for the benefit of those watching and listening at the end of every chapter i summarize what happened in each chapter as sort of 
two to three pithy life and le- life and career lessons that people could take something out of and put into action in their job or in their life sort of right right then and there you know and um it's made for well the reaction has just been phenomenal i don't want to say it's a compelling read the market have told me it's a very compelling read and it seems to be doing pretty well it's not even out yet you know I think it, it it works because obviously you you left school at fifteen. You hadn't got any qualifications, yeah, still um, and and, um, and 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 but this is a this is, I think is a a very good point for a lot of people, a lot of young people watching or reading mm. this book, mm. is that. The, the gateway into lots of things that you want to do are kind of the hurdles are you need to be you need to have studied this you need to have yeah. this degree yeah. you need to have this yeah. qualification you kind of just you came across that and and in the book you you were quite surprised that all of a sudden maybe education was important but your dad taught you the power of words yes and did. you kind of you kind of then thought I can do words and yeah. you use the words as like keys to unlock any yeah. door that was in your way didn't you yeah, I did. And and it was very uh, well put, actually, Phil. So, I mean, the fact that I'm now an author and I've been a columnist for marketing websites and magazines for a while as well sort of plays testament to that. But I've always been good with words, whether it's written word or uh, spoken word, articulation. So I've always been a good public speaker and, I, you know, I do the public speaking circuit now. And... um Words are very powerful and they can lift people up and they can put people down and they can motivate or they can demotivate. And and I found a mixture of words being really open to opportunity. And when finding opportunity, whether it came my way or I created it, we can come on to the luck surface area in a minute. Um, I, w- I then found if I threw myself at something, I found that I had a knack of making things happen. So it was kind of writing the formula, the algebra of how to make things happen. Um, so it was words, the lock surface area, which is create, create your own opportunity. It doesn't happen by itself. And then commitment, which is throw yourself at it. And, you know, some of the stories in the book where I throw myself at things, uh, literally like a doll across the room, um, <laughs> Sometimes I had really great results and sometimes I had spectacular failures, but there was always something to be learned and built on from 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 any of it. But you were you also kind of like you were powered by ACDC from seeing them in Manchester on the Black and Black tour, weren't you? That was kind of like yeah. what plugged you into the mains and thinking, yeah. I want some of that. Yeah. Yeah, like, it was. Um, it was. It was like a direct injection of electricity, literally, as the name ACDC would suggest. Actually, it was for those about to rock on nineteen eighty two, third of October at the Manchester Apollo. Y and T were supporting, um, and actually, I still love them as well. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, I, I left to change my mind. I mean, I remember hearing ACDC. It was top of the pops, ni- early nineteen eighty, early ish nineteen eighty. Um, I think it was about May or June. And it was rock and roll at noise pollution. It was on top of the pops, came on, and literally I was never the same again. So when they were um when they hit the road a year later on the Fellows About to Rock tour, because I was only I was only 12 when Black in Black came out. And so I, just to put into context for people watching and listening, this is a 12-year-old boy at the beginning of secondary school who heard it and, and literally morphed into a different person in front of his parents' eyes to them, to their dismay, <laughs> you know, they were just like, yeah, what happened to being a doctor? And, um, so 
Yeah, I came out of that concert, my ears ringing. I think my ears are still ringing and I'm nearly 56. And um, and it just set me on a path. And then from there on in, as you know, as I uh, narrate through the book, there was a series of events that just unlocked as I went from one event to another, a door would close, a door would open, a door would close, and a door would open, and, and then I sort of spell out what I did to sort of open those doors as some of them were shut firmly in my face at the same time. You kind of, because you you went from school and say no qualifications. Um, I think your dad got you in at Marks and Spencer's where you, yeah. had, a, you had quite an adventure with the uh, mums of a certain age waiting to get their turkeys on Christmas yeah, that, Eve. Yeah, that story seems to be pretty popular. The turkey run seems to pop up everywhere. Well, because I think um, this is a story where I think many people watching and listening to this remember their mums or or again say moms of a certain age yeah getting ready for christmas dinner was such yeah, a yeah. key thing it was getting it. the turkey on christmas mm, eve mm. from marks thing, and spencers yeah yeah it was a big thing yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was it, was, a big, it was it was such a huge cultural moment i don't think i actually even appreciate while i was writing it i didn't re- even really appreciate it because i wrote it from my point of view as being you know the yeah. stock boy or the store boy and from my experience but of course the cultural moment from the mum's point of view is something that everybody will identify with you know and for, you know i did two i did two winters there two christmases there uh when i was uh 15 and 16 and it was the set every year it was just rinse and repeat rinse and repeat rinse and repeat. of course it's an era that is a bygone era now and it doesn't really happen that way anymore very true but it could you could have easily stayed there um and, and probably had a career there at some mm. point but you you mm. wanted to get back into back sorry not back into music into music yes yes and you you managed to find a night course in sound engineering yeah which was only in the evening so you had a lot of spare time and that's yeah. where i think one of the big doors opens where you end up being a roadie for a, a band called Hermits Hermits who which do, were an yeah. old band back then but yeah, this yeah. this part of the book is a trampoline into into what happened next is probably unique to to your initiatives and ideas in you know because you started off just as a roadie yes but you became more than that didn't you I did yeah I I I still have a very very tight connection with Herman's Hermits I don't it's not like I speak to them every day but um uh but especially with Lainey the, the widow of Derek Leckenby the original guitar player uh, we're still very uh, connected, and she's been a huge supporter of the book as well. And she's been she's been very helpful being a fact checker as well. <laughs> and um, so I, I I made this connection with Herman's Hermits coming out of roadieing for them, uh, literally for five pounds and a bag of chips in the back of a transit van, which is how I said to someone in an interview yesterday, this is how all great bands start in the back yeah. of a transit van. I, yeah. I don't care whether you're the who or ACDC, you started in the back of a transit van. It might not happen that way these days, but certainly in the noughties, the nineties, the eighties, the seventies, the sixties and the fifties, that's how it happened. And uh, I was no different. And I just made a connection with the work the culture of the work and and the bands themselves and some of the bands I got on with better than others, but the hermit Herman's hermits were you know they were a Manchester band they live around the corner most of them live around the corner from my parents where I was living at the time, and um, in the college holidays when I went to when I was studying to be a sound engineer, a studio sound engineer, um, in one end of term we I, they took me to a tour on Europe around Germany and Scandinavia. And while I was there, they asked me to go to America with them, which was very, very unexpected. I wasn't expecting it. In fact, the guy I was touring with was expecting to go because he'd been with them for a few years. 
And um, I'd been with them a matter of weeks and they were asking me, which um, made the atmosphere a bit challenging. But <laughs> so long story short, I went, I went at the age of 19, I went to America. And I think you know, that's the trampoline really that you're referring to. But, but you also had, because you weren't just someone who picked up the uh, the Marshall 4x4s and guitar cases, yeah. you actually, yeah. you actually went out of what they expected you to do and yes. suddenly found you had a natural talent for sales. Yes. You started <laughs> selling the T-shirts in a way that they hadn't thought of. Yeah. Well, you might have noticed I'm trying to sell a book at the moment. But the, <laughs> the story that you mentioned, <laughs> the story that you mentioned, but you're absolutely right. And again, it's one of those stories that's caught me by surprise. Even when I was writing it, I, you know, it's my life. I take it, I take some of these things for granted, not in a blase way. Yeah. Uh, I never thought the T-shirt merch stories would resonate so much as it has done with people. And so just for the benefit of everybody. So the... Yeah, you're right. I started humping gear. It was like Fender Twins and Telecasters and whatever else I could pick and pick, push, lift and drop. And um, and then it was, oh, we need you to sell T-shirts because if you're going to come away with us outside of the UK, we've got to pay your wages somehow. And it ain't going to be five pound and a bag of chips. It's like proper wages, which I think I got paid 164 quid a week, which in 1988 for a 17-year-old kid was a f- living at home was a fortune. Yeah. But yeah, I had to earn my keep, right? I had to earn my keep. So they were like, you know, the door money's ours or our fee's ours. The T-shirt money's not all yours, but it's yeah. contributing to, to your wages. So you've got skin in the game. You, you, better, you better flog a few. And one of the main reasons why I got picked to go to America was my entrepreneurial ability to sell T-shirts. That was probably really what it came down to because the other guy was a, Probably a better sound engineer than me, but he didn't want to sell T-shirts. You got you got a you got a nickname as well, didn't you? I did, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My name, my nickname was called. I was called the Shekel. Yeah, and the reason for that was that I just showed this entrepreneurial flair for flogging merchandise at the shows. And, you know, in Germany, it all really came to a head as a story in the book. It all really came to a head where we're doing this huge show, it's about 5,000 people in Germany. And we're there with the Swee and Brian Connolly and a few other bands from the 60s and 70s. And no one's selling nothing, right? And it's in this big arena, big ice hockey arena. All the the, the lights are out. The, the merch tables and stands are set up in a dark corner of the room and no one can even see it. Even though they're announcing it, they're announcing it in English to 5,000 Germans. I mean, nobody can understand <laughs> anything, right? So I'm like, yeah, this isn't happening. And the band are getting a bit antsy. They're just like, damn, we're not selling anything. So I just took it upon myself. I literally loaded up three sizes of T-shirts on my arms like a market trader. And I started walking through the stalls, up and down, inside this huge arena, shouting, T-shirts, T-shirts. They're drinking steins of ice beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. the pretzels and all of this. And I just started flogging them for, I don't know how much it was. It was pre-EU, so it was in Deutschmark. But I don't remember exactly how much it was. But it was a reasonable price, you know. And I made it a round number so people could just give me one note and not get any change. So it's literally like, here's 10, here's a 10, here's a 10, here's a 10. That was it. <laughs> and um, I flogged three boxes of T-shirts in one night. Where, and and literally all the bands put together sold like six T-shirts. Wow. So I got, I earned my nickname when I got back to the dressing room, threw a wad of, wad of Deutschmarks down on the table and said to like, there you go, there's your money. And I gave him a nice problem to have. He's like, we don't have any more merchandise anymore. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's a nice problem. You, you had a you had a worse problem half an hour ago. So there you go. So I got my I got my nickname, the Shackle, of my ability to make money, and um, and and the rest was history. But it, but it, it it gets more kind of like not bizarre or outlandish than that because you start mm. off as you say, humping amplifiers, and then you're selling yeah. the merchandise. You you yeah. 
you had you said you go off to America, but because of a, a strange set of coincidences, one of the members of the band has to go off because um, you know death in the family. You end yeah. up playing. You end up playing bass yeah, in the yeah, band. My, yeah, yeah. My claim to fame is I'm Herman's Hermit's shortest ever member, official <laughs> member. I, yeah, I play three shows. I was in the band for three days, and I got I got paid for it as well. So I'm, I'm a fully signed up member of Herman's Hermit's. But the most bizarre thing was, obviously the circumstances were tragic for Paul, but uh, for me, I was just like, failure was not an option. I didn't have a choice. It's like, for bands of for bands like the Hermits, who tour for a living, they make the money off touring and merchandise, um, cancelling three shows at 24 hours notice was not an option, you know, when we needed to do three or four shows a week to pay the bills and make, make the whole thing viable, right? So they, they didn't even ask me. They just told me, and they just went, you're, you're playing bass tomorrow night, Shekel. And uh, I'm left-handed. And you left-handed left as, well. as well. So they had to restring, restring the bass for me. It was a Fender Jazz. So it's a restring the bass for me, Hendrix style, not that I've got any inkling of his talent but um uh i only have four strings to to contend with so it was fine and three chords so um so I'm, I, I had to learn the set even though i've heard it a thousand times i didn't know how to play it um i had to learn the set in the back of a van on a sony walkman for two hours we dropped paul off at the airport carry on playing the next night i'm wearing a i think it was a silver lame suit but of course this is 1988 in those days my hair was down here as you've seen the picture in there's a yeah, picture yeah. in the book yeah. straight after that first show. And um and everyone was like, Yeah, he's not an original member, is he? But uh, uh but we did it, we got away with it, and it, it was a good show, and the band were thrilled, and it was like it's these moments where you where you really dig in that bonds are forged. And it's those moments that still to this day, those bonds are forged. Do, do you also think though, because you were obviously at- you were back, well, how, 19, 20? I was, this, I was 19. I went 19. to my, I was okay, 19. So, I had my 20th birthday while I was there. Yeah, so you, you're you a teenager. Yeah. So nearly 20, but yeah. you, because also you, you're doing tons of driving yes, in I countries am. that you don't know. Yes. And so there were lots of things here. You, you've been yeah. a roadie with Herman Hermits. You, you've suddenly, you're selling the merch. You're deciding to go out amongst the auditorium, amongst all these yeah. people in a, yeah. in a in a country where you don't speak the language. You're yeah. driving thousands of miles. Yes. Um, and now you're having to play in with the band and learn the songs on a Walkman in the back of the van. Yeah. And not What's interesting, years. what I take from this is that yeah. at not one point did you say, I can't do this. No. Or, or your nerves got the better of you. And you said, I can't, look, I'm already driving a thousand miles. I'm, I can't yeah. do it. You actually yeah. just kept saying, just yeah, okay then. Yeah. Uh, say yes to everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, my policy was, and I, it's not anymore, but I like to be more opportunistic than not. I, say yes to everything and throw yourself at it with, with everything that you've got. Because... If you think about it, you know, my career, my my options in those days, um, and I still have this attitude even today at my age, you know, and I'm nearly 56. My attitude in those days was failure is absolutely not an option because if this doesn't work, there is no plan B, right? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger did a very famous talk um, a few years back called there's no plan B. And that was my life. I, I didn't have any plan B. It's like, if I'm going to do this, I am just going to have to throw myself at it and it's going to work or it's not going to work, but I've just got to keep going at it. And um, so when an opportunity would come up, an opportunity would beget an opportunity, right? So one door opens another and then maybe two doors open and one door closes and you just scratch your way, you scratch and claw your way through it, especially in a business like the music business where it doesn't have a, 
a formalized career path like some businesses do. You did, uh, although you did say no to one opportunity, didn't you? Because you were offered a job in a in a studio in the states, weren't I did, you? Yes, but you I actually did, said yeah. no to that. Yeah, I did. Again, I was nineteen and I was training as a sound engineer, and then I got offered a sound engineer's job in America, and I'm like, what's not to like? Yeah. But um, the, the the reality of the matter is, I think that that was a moment where I thought it was just a stretch too far because I knew there was no green card. I'd be an illegal alien. I knew I'd be sleeping on a sofa. And by the way, you didn't see the sofa. It was rank. It wasn't <laughs> even a nice sofa. Yeah. <laughs> it's like sleeping on the sofa in, in America without any paperwork. Um Look, maybe it would have worked out, maybe it wouldn't, but it would have been a massive, massive struggle. And at that time, I still had, I still had the inclination that I was going to go back to England and finish my college course in sound engineering. So that was still my goal. Although, as you know, from reading the book, it didn't last very long when I got back no. to England. <laughs> but York, when you do go back to the UK, you 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 start to help a band from further up north um yes. who became small town heroes yes now you absolutely poured everything into this um <laughs> like, like, like and I do. <laughs> this is before the as we come where they got a deal but you spent yeah. ages with them before they yeah. changed their name and what yeah. comes across in the book is and i've heard other people say this to me over the years is you've got to have the courage to make the call and yeah. you you just battled through receptionists to get hold of people who yeah. were well known from the music week directory yeah. whatever it was yeah. and yeah. you just kept going even yeah. then going down to london and seeing oh, people gosh, like yeah. mickey most yeah who, yeah who just yeah, yeah. indifferently said nah yeah i just i just battled my way into his office literally <laughs> that we, using words right using yeah. words yeah um i use words to open doors literally open doors physically and, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I even did that. Looking back now, I'd be like, if my kids wanted to do that, I'd be like, are you crazy? But of course that's what I did. And they're like, dad, but yeah, you did it. And I'm like, it's a different time. But, um, yeah, the, in the days that the small town heroes weren't called the small town heroes, they were called the troubleshooters. We spent a good two or three years, uh, establishing ourselves on the Northeast club circuit. Um, living off no money in skanky flats, you know, or analog telephones. Don't forget, all of this is a pre-internet. Half the book is set in the analog era of Britain in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and it's literally picking up the phone, 600, no no free calls. It was 600 pound a month phone bills to wow. phone London. Was Phoning London was long distance in those days. Yes, that's right, yeah. It was, it was the same cost as phoning France. So it was hard work. Uh, very very hard work and i at the end at the end of that part of that story with that band um i got to a point where i couldn't do anymore and i went back touring again uh for a year or two and we re it all, as you know reading the book it all got reinvented it all reinvented itself somehow and it, we all came back together again not so long after and under a different name, I got I moved to London. I got them a record deal, and um, then we spent a few years on the road as a as a BMG and EG artist. Yeah, you also. Uh, this is another point in the book um, where ACDC return. Ah, the old bonfire box. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now this this part of the book is really interesting because obviously it made me go and find it off the shelf, and the yeah. fact that 
ACDC are a band that doesn't care about anything they've recorded in the past because who knew that yeah. people might be interested in archive recordings years oh, of, gosh, or, yeah. you know, box sets. Yeah. And you actually you meet, um, I think, someone who becomes your girlfriend who yeah. then is working for ACDC. So they're yes. trying to find this record, but there's only a few DJ copies. I, I yeah. don't know where we're going to find one from. You had two copies. Yeah. Uh, the bizarre thing is they thought, so George Young, I get, I get the call from George Young. Uh, and if you know anything about ACDC, he was a co-producer for, uh, for yeah. all their albums before Highway to Hell and brother of, older brother of Angus and Malcolm. I get the call from George uh, through, through this uh, lady uh, who I was dating at the time. Uh, and the bottom line is, for the, li- the album in question is called Live from the Atlantic Studios. It's a huge rarity. There's like 200 copies in the world, maybe 300. I mean, they... 25 years ago, they were selling for £200 a copy. Wow. Lord knows what they sell for now, right? Really, I, have no, I haven't even bothered looking for 20 years. And I get the phone call, and the sound down the phone was of just complete exas- exasperation, of beyond clutching at straws. They were clutching at dust. <laughs> you know, they were like, like, literally, they were like, by any stretch of the imagination, would you know anybody who's got one? Because I, I was well known in the fan community. And I'm like, yeah, me, I've got two. And they were sitting on a shelf eight feet away, winking at me. So they went they went into the Albert studio. Um, Alberts used to have a studio in London in those days. And it, all, all of this work was done in the Albert studio in London on, the bo- on this part of the bonfire box set anyway. So the albums went in, uh, carried like nitroglycerin um, into the studio the following day. And George dubbed off my vinyl onto the master onto the digital master Incredible. tape and that story is in the liner notes of that bonfire box set that you've just yeah. shown me the only thing is it doesn't mention me by name but no, of course, no. in my book i tell you the full story of what happened how it happened who was involved and people in the fan industry fan community of you know the hardest core nerds and uh, and i used to be one of them certainly probably don't even know this story either they only know what they've read on the liner notes of the CD. Now, it's an incredible story. And the fact that you get to small town heroes assigned to EG Records and the fact that how, how all this comes together is just an amazing story in the book. You yeah. then moved to London. You've got a proper yeah. job. You're in a plush yeah. office. Yeah, mum and dad are happy. Yeah. <laughs> but an interesting, there's an interesting, I think, an important part of the book here because everything's looking good. And just like a lot of bands would have done, and I was yeah. in a position like this myself. Yeah. Yeah. Got this. We need to go and find a lawyer. We need to make sure we're not going to be. Oh, gosh, yeah. And you go off to see a lawyer who quite yeah. naturally looks at the contract and finds lots of things wrong with it. Yeah. And then you think, go back and do a bit of negotiating. Yeah. And what happens is they just say, that's it, deals off, forget it, it's all over. Yeah. Yeah, and the my whole world fell out of my the back of my pants. Uh, I mean, I moved to London on a it wasn't on a whim. I knew this deal was being offered. So first of all, I knew it was being offered, but we didn't have it. It wasn't signed. So I moved to London. Uh, I moved in with Steve Bush, actually, Stereophonics producer, uh, who wasn't the Stereophonics producer then. Although mm-hmm. that story's in the book as well. So I moved in with Bushy, who was also. An aspiring producer, he was working at Dream Hire, a music equipment um, rental firm. So I moved in with him. He was looking for a lodger and he had a room for rent. So I moved in with him. I had no money, literally had no money. And um, I set up the fax machine in my bedroom in this rented flat in North London. We start the negotiations. I'm like, well, I never even thought that it wouldn't not have it would not happen. Of course, it's going to happen. They've offered us a deal, so the, the contracts go back and forth, back and forth, and then it was like, no, and from the label, uh, and I was like, what do you mean, no? 
What do you mean no? I'm sitting in. <laughs> I just bet the farm on this, you know. Yeah. And I was just like, it was just desperate beyond belief. And and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but uh, it was desperate beyond belief. And I had to again, no plan B. Uh, and I had to find a way to make it to rescue the deal. And and desperation was the uh, desperation and begging was the only way I could do it. There was absolutely no other way of doing it. And how I did it, you know, I, as you know, I, I think, I, I think this is where the, the I think this is where it really helps also as a, as a business book, yeah. because that must have happened to lots of people where they then oh, yeah. have a decision to make. Yeah. Do one. they just follow what the, the lawyer or someone's saying, don't, don't do yeah. this, don't do this. Yeah. Or yeah. you, or you think, no, this is what I really want. Yeah. I, yeah. This is this is the door I want to go through. There was no and option. What it, I think, what the book, all the way through the book, all mm. of your kind of business advice at the end of each chapter mm. is about compromise in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't. You you have to. You have to get a win win for everybody, right? So, both sides, both sides, regardless of what you're trying to achieve, have to find a position that they're comfortable enough with to make it happen. So, in the mutual interest, you can move forward. And that happens so many times. And look, you know, the guys at EG, they're, they're savvy, um, really, really savvy. But um, without going into detail or, or 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 committing liable myself, there was other things going on at the time with the lawyers and the label that had nothing to do with us, which which I surmise may have may or may not have had something to do with it. But the reality of the matter is that as you as you said, Phil, we had to make a decision, and I had to put it to the band. I'm like, look. It's your contract. You're signing it, not me. I'm the manager, right? You're the one who has to live with the consequences. Um, and this is what it means. So I you know, spelled it out for them. And it's like the option of not signing. What is the option of not signing? The option of not signing this deal is going back 10 years. No, it would have, at that point, it would have been seven years. It would have yeah. been rewinding the calendar seven years and starting over again, which wasn't really an option. You know, we weren't getting any younger either. And here we were ready and hot to trot. And I'm in London and, you know, we've got an album half in the can. So the band made the decision themselves. I have to say it was the right decision under the circumstances. The band made the decision. We're going to ignore the lawyers and we're going to sign it. But this wasn't any old lawyer. It was the lawyer. Yeah. The lawyer. I won't mention him in our name, but he's in the book. Uh, the biggest music business lawyer in London, I would say at that time, probably forever, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, went on to run multinational music companies and I don't know what. Anyhow, you have to read it in the book. But it was like, it wasn't any old lawyer. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to we're gonna tell this, this presidential elect rock star lawyer who's like God. No, we're not going to take it. We're no, not going to take his advice. Yeah, yeah, stuff your, your advice, mister. Send us the invoice. So that which is it ended up what we ended up doing. But and then we had an, we had three years. We had three years, and we had, we made a really good fist of it for the next three years. But but know. it also shows this part of the book now, where for the band now, I've got a proper record deal. They've signed yeah. it, yeah. and ev everything that you you try so many things to get to get this band out there and get yeah. them a hit single, get them exposure, even having like the first interactive singles, yeah, and, and all. But it doesn't, it doesn't work, does it? In the long no. run, it just doesn't. In the long happen. run, no. We had we had minor success after minor success, but it, you know, it's some it summed up to equal not enough uh, at the end of the day. And 
they're a really good band. Let's put it. I'll put it this way: they're a really good band, and they deserve the shot. Uh, as with many, maybe many other yeah. bands as well. You know, not any different from many other great bands who had a shot and, and didn't, didn't, yeah, didn't, yeah. didn't get there. Um, it was right band, wrong place, wrong time. You, you could surmise it wasn't for the lack of effort. You know, it wasn't the fact that they weren't great. They were fantastic on the road. Um, if the internet had been around, because it was pre-internet, if the internet had been around and the tools that exist today, I still surmise that they would have had a chance or they mm. would have been able to find an audience somewhere, right? And and probably and the, the times we live in now, they would have mobilised that audience to actually... Yeah buy things on the on a certain day and it would have got exactly them the i could have done i could have done so much more for them but we were as with bands in the 80s and 90s you were at the mercy of radio one mm. uh and it's like if you weren't on radio one or or should i say in the early to mid 90s when Britpop was like the only thing that really mattered in the uk yeah you're invisible uh, um you're invisible and that's mm. that was the era we lived in we were in the wrong time we 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 tried to reposition ourselves as part of the movement, but just we we clearly weren't. We were just too classic rock for that. So, so EG, EG Records then hits the hits the rocks in something, and you find yourself out on a out of a job again. And the band yes. have obviously lost their contract, and you kind yeah. of go for an interview at ZTT, uh, yeah. but and that doesn't work <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah, that's the understatement of the century. But let's leave. <laughs> let's not spoil that one. <laughs> you have to read yeah, the book but, for that one. <laughs> I will just say for those of you thinking, should I buy this book? That one of the laugh out loud moments is the ZTT interview with Jill Sinclair. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but it will yeah. it will have you in stitches. Yeah, um, absolutely fantastic. Now here you pivot. Out yes. of the music business into the games um, arena, don't you? Yeah, yeah. First with GTA Games, then Virgin Interactive. Yeah. Did, were you? Did you? Were you just thinking, well, I've done music, or this is this is going to pay the bills, and it's yeah. to do with media. I'm going here. Yeah. It wasn't that straightforward. Um, I was out of work for ten months. Uh, I had a mortgage. I had a girlfriend. You know, I'd started building a life in London, uh, which is what I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, I found myself out of work. Um, it was an interesting time in the music industry, which, you know, anybody with a career also has to recognize where, where the tidal waves are. Um, and it, and this tidal wave was called the internet. And, um, so I found myself out of work just as the internet is really hitting as Napster is becoming a thing, file sharing and, and piracy and the music industry is in retreat. So a year or two beforehand, you know, the equivalent to Billboard, which is Music Week in the UK, the back pages were full of jobs. Actually, when I needed a job, the back pages were were, were just empty, um, unfortunately. So I'd always felt like, well, I'll get a job somewhere else. It, it'll be fine. When If this ends, it'll be, I'll go and work at AMI or something. But actually, when it did end, um, the context was uh, the category in the world around us had changed because we'd gone from selling CDs to file sharing and piracy and the internet and the music industry being in retreat. And it stayed in retreat for 10 years. Yeah, it did. Yeah. So it's not like I could hang around. Um, so I did try, I did try, you know, that, that ZTT story um, interview was part of that era of when I was really still committed to staying in the music industry. I thought I've come this far. If I can get an interview with just someone like Trevor Horn, and hold my own with Trevor Horn. I can find it. I can do this, right? Um, and I think that's a fair analogy. You also say in your book that past achievements are no guarantee of success. 
with correct, this. and that's exactly where we were, right? Yeah. So it's like we're all getting our proverbial behind handed to us on a silver platter by the internet, and it's like, well, guess what? Time moves on, and I've been in my flat for ten months. I've got two months before I need to sell it, um, and I'm running out of money. So past achievements mean absolutely nothing when we look at reality, um, reality of the time. So the call comes in, the call that you're alluding to, the call comes in. Hello, Harvey. Are you interested from a recruiter? I found you on, I found you in music. Are you interested in video games? And I was like, not really. But once they explained to me what the role was and the similarities, the adjacentness of, you know, a creative still being in the creative world and being in a publishing oriented business because films, music and video games are, and books, by the way, they're publish oriented business. It's just that the That's artists true. are different. You're either creating music, you're creating video games by writing code, you're writing words, you're all creators of a, of a sort and your works are published. And in the music industry, the publishers are the record labels and the music publishers. So it's, it's the same, but slightly different, but it was adjacent enough in that, era as the music door was closing the video games door was opening so the internet killed music for quite a while but it was fueling the fire of video games and i found myself at the crossroads of it and i just happened i never thought of it but i got a phone call from a recruiter uh i think she's still around to this day actually um would you be interested in video games that they're, they're crying out for people they're on the they're on the bottom of the crest of a wave and there aren't enough experienced people in video games. So we're looking to, to film, film a music, um, to recruit. I'm like, yeah, why not? <laughs> I can use a gig. Um, so yeah, like you say, I, I, but when the job came in, the job wasn't even in London. So, uh, I had to move back up North for a year, just under a year, uh, worked at, uh, Gremlin Interactive in Sheffield, which is where DMA, who did the yeah. Grand Theft Auto franchise, uh, was based. Yeah. And then it was always a means to an end for me. It's like, well, I will come back to London, but I just need to sort of get my feet back under a desk somewhere for a little bit first. And then when I came back to London, it was to work for Virgin. And I did th three years at Virgin before I went to Microsoft on the Xbox team. Yeah. You also so it really a... unlocked things for me. You also had another a side hustle talking about the internet. You actually, yeah. I presume you learned to, how to do this yourself. You designed a website for ACDC yes. before they had one themselves. I did. I did learn how to do it myself. Yeah. Um, as I, even to this day, it's still true. I'm learning. I'm, still, I'm learning how to use AI at the moment. It still baffles me. But the, um, the ACDC website store, I won't go because I was. Yeah, yeah. This is another part of the book that's fantastic. But this again puts you in front of the band, doesn't it? In yeah, a, it does. Yeah. It does. Well, they, they don't, the funny thing, the, the, maybe it's not so surprising because we're talking about ACDC is like they're the most analog band in the world and they still are. And in a way it's why we love them, right? They just don't change and we don't want them to change. No, no, we don't know. If they had a synthesizer in their music, I'd, be, I'd bin them tomorrow, but they don't. And, um, the context was, yeah, they didn't have a website, even though the web, you know, the internet was blowing up at the time. They didn't have a website and they didn't have a website for a very long time, actually. And, I found myself back in London, footloose and fancy free, and I just threw myself into my obsession with ACDC. And so I built out this website. It was called the ACDC Resource yeah, Center. Yeah. It's not around anymore. But then he started getting, you know, Metal Hammer and Kerrang started writing about it and coming to my flat to take photos of me. And I've got a photo of me from Metal Hammer somewhere with all my yeah. collection. And um, uh, so I started building some notoriety and I started interviewing some of the team members of ACDC. So wow. George Young and Harry, I had a call with Harry Vander in Melbourne um, and recorded the interview for the website. And so I, I was getting access 
to their inner network. And that's one of the reasons why I got the call for the Bonfire Box set. It's also one of the reasons that I got the call from their record label. Uh, in 2001, it was on the Stiff Upper Lip album, just to give people a, a sort of context. There it is, Stiff Upper Lip. Great title track, still one of the best title tracks of an album ever. Yeah. Um, and so the, their record label ring me up and go, we do, we're working on the campaign. Funnily enough, it was a product marketer, which is my field. Uh, she rings me up and she goes, oh, hi, it's blah, 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 EMI, um, who was their label at the time. And... Um, we want to do some internet digital marketing stuff, but the band don't do any. Like, they're <laughs> clueless. Bless them. They're clueless. They, you know, I'm like, okay, what do you want? They're like, well, can you come in and have a chat? So I went to AMI. We had a chat. And again, the full story's in the book. And they wanted access to my website. They wanted to use my website. They wanted access to all the database that I'd built with all the email addresses. And I'm like, it's going to cost you. And they're like, we don't have any budget. And I'm looking around the office. Yeah. You know, there's pictures of Freddie Mercury. And, yeah. and I'm like, a statue, gold statues everywhere. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way I'm swallowing this horse, you know, there's yeah. absolutely no way, but I'm like, you know what? Let me make it easy for you. Just give me some swag. Right. Yeah. And, and a gold disc. Uh, and I'm like, give me a gold disc to say, to acknowledge my contribution and I'll do it for you. And they had to think about it. I'm like, don't be a cheapskate. Come on. You know, what's it going to cost you? 200 quid. And uh, anyhow, they agreed to it. And again, the rest is history. We did the campaign. It was great. And they ended up, uh, using the website, my website address on all the official advertising. That's how little they had for ACDC in the digital area in 2001. They used my website. And I, I remember getting a really big kick. I was in a tube station and I was reading Kerrang! as well at the same time when the album was out. And I was like, there's my website address on the bottom of the official ACDC advertising. Oh, incredible. You know, I'm kicking myself. I never kept it or took a picture. But uh, it was there. It was part of incredible. the deal. Yeah, and, you, and then when you, I think you were with Virgin Interactive when you met them in Germany, didn't you? After they'd come, I was, up. yeah, yeah, I was. I, I, um, when they were on the Stiff Upper Lip tour in two thousand and one, um, I made it my business uh, to go to every show in the UK. I drove to every show in the UK, and I went to all the major stadium yeah. shows around Europe. And I wrote about it. Did a full tour blog of which you know EMI had access to as well, and. Um, uh, so I went to Stade de Paris, Paris, went to that show, went to the Olympic Stadium in Munich, uh, went to a couple of others. And then the other one was in Hamburg and Virgin, <clears throat> Hamburg, the Hamburg show wasn't that huge, but the reason I went to Hamburg is because when I was working at Virgin, the Virgin office was in Hamburg. I just thought I'll tie it into a work trip, right? So I flew over to Hamburg, did a work trip, sort of semi-work trip and went with a workmate. And um, we went to the show, I wrote the article, I went back to the hotel, which I always stayed at the same hotel when I travelled for Virgin. So in Hamburg, it was the Park Hyatt. And um, I'm saying, and I'm stood at the bar, and I said to my friend, I, I said, wouldn't it be funny if ACDC just walked in now? It's after the show. Yeah. Wouldn't it be funny? And I turn around, and I'm looking at Angus. <laughs> he just walked in, and then the rest of the band walk in, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I just spoke the words and they just appeared. And anyway, I don't want to spoil it because the full story is in the nah, book. Nah, nah. But um, there's a there's a photo in the of the book with me with Angus and the band um, at the Park Hyatt in Hamburg that night in 2001, uh, where events happened and rolled out and serendipity and fate and destiny or whatever you want to call it all rolled into one. Just happened in a five minute a five minute space, random a random choice meeting 
you know, with my. But it's it's just a, it's amazing that ACDC, this band that absolutely motivated you and changed your life at such yeah. an early age, came yeah. into <laughs> interweaving with you. Yeah. And then again, we don't want to spoil it because it's in the book. But you move on then to working for Microsoft and the yes. and the the Xbox. And yeah. this is a a great story in itself because of it's how not to it's how not to launch things, yeah. How, yeah. how to launch things and how yeah. not to launch things again. Yes, and, it is. And, yeah. and I know my my one of my uh, my eldest son knows very much the term the Red Ring of Death, for instance. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I I lived it. <laughs> Literally, I lived the red ring of death, amongst other things. Yeah, I mean, look, nobody. Funnily enough, most people just don't see the pivot from music to video games. But it, it like you say, it was a creative industry, and I pivoted to it. And I, I very fortunately um, created the created the right time in the right place to get the call from Microsoft for the interview when uh, the when they, before the Xbox actually launched in two thousand, where I was interviewing for them, and I thought. Well, if I get this gig, it's a great step up to go to Microsoft from Virgin. And uh, although I did enjoy my time at Virgin, I have to say, um, uh, I did. I just thought, well, I'll go there for three years because every job I've ever had before that had been there for three years, and my MO was always the same: knock it out for the park for the first year, throw myself at it. Second year, sustain it. You know, leverage you know, leverage all the equity that I built. And third year, get 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 really bored and move on. Uh, and and I just thought this would be no different, but then I stayed twelve years, so uh, <laughs> it's like, and it wasn't expect. It was most the most unexpected twelve years of my life. Um, so yeah, you're right. I was employee number twelve on the fledgling Xbox launch team uh, wow. in the UK. I was the last one in the door. It was three months, about three months before it came out, which was March fourteenth, two thousand and two, in Europe. And I uh, stayed 12 years. So we launched it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, there's four chapters in the book about Xbox, yeah, four, yeah. the four last chapters. And I talked through the first the, the story of how the first Xbox came about and how we launched it. Then the, the success we had with the Xbox 360, which was a phenomenal success. Um, and then the challenges that we had with the Xbox One, which is ironically the third xbox don't ask me why it's called the xbox one i've still got a beef about that um and so on and so forth i actually do a talk on the speaking circuit called called the three lessons xbox taught the world and uh and um it's a half hour to 40 minute talk about all the key lessons from a marketer's point of view of of what xbox did because it's a story that's never been told right it's been there's a corporate version of it well, you can go on YouTube and you can see all the execs talking about it, and they make everything sound so pretty and nice. Even the Red Ring of Death doesn't sound like a like like a, a near fatal uh, incident, which of which it was. But I talk I, I talk about it from a staff member's point of view about what it was actually like in the trenches. Right? This is this is really what happened, and this is how it happened. And it wasn't all pretty; it was pretty gritty. Um, and. So there's a lot of surprises in the book. You'll be quite surprised about how some of these big names, these big corporations behave. Uh, not all well, I have to say. And again, it's one of my key takeaways um, when I was writing the book. It's like, you know what? Some of these some of these corporations are really badly behaved or really badly mismanaged or somehow I just wonder how they even became successful in the first place. But uh, anyway, it's all in there. Yeah. So, and and then you've, now you've become, you're an author. Um, so yeah. yeah. And, and, and at the back of the book, it says you're thinking of writing the next stage, chapter two in this yes. um, as well. Yes. Is that, is that going to take literally take off from where you this one leaves off? Or Basically, it, yes. Yeah. It's exactly, it's, it's sequential. So this book spans from 
1980 um, until about 2013, 2014, when I leave Microsoft, when I leave the Xbox team. Um, so that's about 10 years ago. I left about 10 years ago and went into tech, um, but still stayed in marketing. But the interesting thing is, you know, I was having the conversation, what, a year, or t- a year and a half ago with my editor, and I was like, you know, where, how big should this book be? Because I can carry on writing it. It was going to end up being, when we did the word count, it was going to end up being like war and peace. So we're just like, look, we need to find a natural break for this edition of the story. And the natural break was when I left Microsoft um, and and pivoted out of video games into cybersecurity, another pivot. And um, so the theme for the next book, it'll still have some music in it. It won't be as musicy. Um, although I wish, I wish that that wasn't true. Um, but the reality of it is this, it's still full of all the funny stories, but they're just not told from a music point of view because there were so many shenanigans in the corporate world that people just wouldn't believe. Some of which are in the Microsoft passages in this book. Mm. And then there's an equal amount in all the other stories as well. So you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you can join me on, join me on the journey. Well, it's a it is a fantastic book, and it's very very inspiring. As I've said, there's lots of laugh out loud moments, but there's some very kind of um, thought provoking passages for anybody, whatever your career path, whatever you're doing in your life. If you're about to start something new, or you or you've been doing something for, for longer than perhaps you should, um, <laughs> there, there's lots of advice here on pushing you forwards. I mean, one of the things that that comes across um, in this hobby is that. You constantly just leapt out of your comfort zone, yeah. Time after time, yeah, when many other right people <laughs> would have just, many other people would have just held on to the rail, thinking, "I think yeah. that'll do for now." But yeah, you just yeah. keep, you just yeah. literally kept pushing forward. Yeah, you know what? Coming back to the beginning of the book, and I don't want to spoil the beginning of the book because you know how it starts. Um, my life now comes all the way, still goes all the way back to those moments where. At school, and, and and maybe your listeners and viewers will recognize this, at school, I was told I wasn't good enough, right? I was told that if I don't um, adhere to the structure of the establishment and study this way and study that and take this subject and take that, that basically I'll be nothing. That's what I was told by my careers teacher, Right. And every other teacher and the establishment and the institutions and the teachers reinforce that in every lesson with me. And maybe some of the kids fell into line. I mean, probably most of them fall into line because they don't push back. But it wasn't in my nature. Right. It it didn't interest me enough to fall into line. I tried falling into line. I fell out again. And um, (laughs) I crashed out. And um and it all it all comes to a head in the book, anyhow. But the, I, I'm still like that. It's like I never really fell into life. Even for all of these years, all these decades that I worked for corporations, I was always the odd one out, right? I always never fell into line. And maybe I think my time at Xbox was so long is that I found a place where I could call home for a long period of time um, without actually, you know, accidentally finding it. Uh, but like you say. I've always pushed forward. Uh, I'm pushing forward as a as an author now, and as a freelance consultant uh, as well, and, and as a speaker, uh, because I don't see that there is a plan B right now. My plan B would have been to go back to corporates. Right, I could do that until I retire, but I've chosen not to because, as you'll find out in the next book, um, that it um, uh, my time there was just done. 
And and I'm finding that now, especially coming out of lockdown, it was another topic, but there's a lot of people now coming out of lockdown, reevaluated their lives and thought, well, what, what is it all about? Uh, yeah. I asked myself that question from the age of 15. So it's nothing new for me, but it feels like the rest of the world's taken 40 years to catch up. But um, that's ultimately what it came down to. So I'm still, I'm still doing it, still proving to myself or proving to my careers teacher that actually it doesn't have to be that way. Well, my, my last my last question, uh, Harvey, and thank you for all of your time today, is Pleasure. that a lot of people go through life and they always think that they're up against people saying, what university did you go to? What degree did you get to get this job? You obviously came, you had none of that. You came, yeah. you were a blank piece yeah. of paper, but you just yes. knew what you wanted to do. Yeah. In some ways, where we are now with the internet, a, a lot of younger people now, it's based on what you've prove you can do rather than what you can do on paper. So with the internet, yeah. you can set up things, you can create things, and you can build up a portfolio of things without having to go yeah. off to uni or do anything like that. Agree. I, I think that the world from that world has become, I think it's more and more positive. Actually, it's become more democratized. People have got more opportunity. They've got more choice, um, whether it's music or whether it's marketing or whether it's whatever it is that you're interested in in the creator economy or not the creator economy, it doesn't matter anymore because the options are there. I mean, when I was growing up, the options weren't there. You had to, you had to be classed as a rebel and push yeah. against the system to be able to do it. But now you don't, it's almost like the system supports you. And I think in the past, even in the past less than five years, it's changed again, not because of the internet or because of what's available, but because lockdown and the cost of living and, the quality of degrees now and what they actually get you by the by the fact that more than 50% of kids go to university now it's actually watered down the impact of what it actually means to have a degree mm. and there's some there's been some great studies I've, i mean i've read a lot of them that shows you that unless you're going to unless you need a degree for the career path you've chosen let's say you want to be a lawyer actually in this country you can be a lawyer without a degree but um yeah, as long as you do the you bar mean. but in the us you need a degree um uh, you want to be a doctor or something like that, where you need to go to medical school, university school. I'm not sure there's any point anymore, and especially with the cost. So mm. if you factor in the tens and tens of thousands of costs and all the debt that's associated with it, what the the studies now show, the amount of incremental money you'll make from going to university now is next to nothing. So, But you'll be saddled with debt. So what is the point? And like you say, Phil... It's now democratized to a point where from a very early age, and I would encourage any kids, if you know, any parent, any any people listening or watching this that have got kids who are teenagers that are wondering what to do, encourage them to start a side hustle while they're at school. Start creating. Find even if it's not successful, find your passion. Find out what you're not good at, what you don't like. It's as good as finding out what you do like because you can just chalk it off and say, okay, I learned something that's not for me. Let's go in yeah. this direction. And while you're young enough and the tools exist and, you know, the kids are so computer savvy now and internet savvy, more than most of us, um, that the, I, I get a huge kick when I read someone who's like 18 or 17 and just made their first million yeah. and they're still doing their A-levels. And I'm like, you know what? Good for you. Good for you. You know, and... Um, and they've chosen the the non so called traditional path. And I think the traditional path now is so watered down and is so I don't say of little value, but um, it's it's of such less importance than it used to be that 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 people now have so many more options. You just go go just start, 
just start. If you're 15 and you fancy setting up an eBay store, just find a way to make it happen. I don't care if you're not old enough in the T's and C's, put it in your dad's name, yeah. you know, find a way. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. So when, when, when the book is out this, this month, isn't it? Yeah, it's out 14th of February, Valentine's Day. Uh, great present uh, yeah. to yourself. <laughs> Maybe your wife wouldn't agree, but um, it's a great present. Fourteenth uh, of February, it's out. All great, all the usual yeah. bookstores online: Amazon, Waterstones, Blackwells, Barnes and Noble in the states, Walmart. You know, okay. So it's available, and um, I'm just so blessed and, and gra- thankful that the, re- the reception of it has been so phenomenal. I mean, it went to number one on Amazon in the hot chart. Uh, it's won four awards so far in America, wow. and yeah, and and the reviews are averaging at four point eight everywhere. Oh. And I'm like, so I'm I'm very humbled by. It. I wasn't expecting it, but uh, like you say, might be the next door to walk through, Phil. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks very much, Harvey. Thanks for all of your time, and take care. And I look forward to talking to you when the when the, in the next instalment. Look so, forward to it. Thanks a lot, Phil. All the thank best. you. Thank you. Bye. A huge thank you to my guest, Harvey Lee, for joining me today for the Now Spinning Magazine podcast to talk about his new book, Backstage Pass. 50% rock and roll, 50% business. There are some real laugh out loud moments, but equally, there's some great advice for anybody, whatever your job is, whatever part of your career path you're on, whether you're thinking of venturing out on your own as an entrepreneur, starting your own business. There's some really interesting advice and it's I love the way the book is positioned with the stories, like Harvey says, almost like a a film script in the in the actual chapters and then the kind of advice tagged on the end of each one as well. It's I think it's unique in its in its field. And I think, as Harvey said, if it had been a music book, who would have heard of Harvey, perhaps? And if it had been a business book, there's just so many out there. But where it is, it's very unique. And I loved it obviously. Um, but one of the things I really liked was was Harvey's stories about ACDC, um, especially things about the Bonfire box set I didn't know about. And again, how bands and music can interject our lives and take us down routes and motivate us to do certain things in our lives. And so I hope you found that really, really interesting and hopefully inspirational as well. So please check out the website, nowspinning.co.uk. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel, to the podcast. Check out the Facebook group. Become a patron or YouTube member. Thank you for being here. Remember, music is the healer and the doctor. Take care. Keep spinning those discs. And I shall see you all on the next episode.